0: The reading for today's sermon will come from Psalm 110. I'll be reading the entire psalm. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies Your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. his head. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. And will you pray with me as we come to God's word? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have You have revealed who you are through your son. And so now as we come to your word, may you help us to respond to that revelation rightly. Help us to respond to the one who came down at Christmas in a fitting way. Lord, I pray that All of the resistance that might reside in our hearts, any blinders, anything that we hold on to that would keep us from this Christ would fall before the glory and majesty of your word. Strengthen us now, Lord, strengthen us to hear and to see wondrous things from your law to the glory and exaltation of your son. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's a sincere privilege to bring the word of God to you today on Christmas. Thank you, Steve, for giving me the opportunity. And thank you to each of you for your patience as I unfold a a non-traditional but hopefully a fitting Christmas passage. Well, it's Christmas, obviously, and Christmas is is preceded by an entire season. It's preceded by the Christmas season. It's preceded by Advent. And if you're like me, perhaps you like to not only participate in the season, not only enjoy the season, but also to analyze the season. And when I analyze the season from a, just an objective standpoint, I find it to be oddly fascinating. There, there are a couple, I mean, there are a lot of things that you could say were oddly fascinating. One would be men, large men with beards dressing up in red suits. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just fascinating. It's just interesting. An- another would be the fact that we hang socks over our fireplaces. There's there's nothing wrong with that. I'm gonna do that. I I hope to do that later with my family, but still, it's interesting that we put candy and we put gift cards in those stockings. But most interesting, most fascinating of all of these cultural aspects of the Christmas season, most interesting to me is the music that plays in the department store, in the elevator, in the waiting room at the dentist's office. And it's interesting to me, because even in our pluralistic age, even in our anti-tradition age, you have music with biblical content and deeply profound lyrics coming down over those speakers. And what's interesting to me is that in spite of that biblical content, in spite of those profound lyrics, lyrics about the incarnation of the Son of God, lyrics about the identity of Jesus, lyrics about angels praising that Son of God, in spite of all of that, no one is rioting in the streets. As much as people in our day and age like to riot in the streets, that's not one of the things that causes people to riot in the streets. There's no outcry. Even while the lyrics, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, come down over the speakers at Coles, nobody is upset. Why is that? I think that there's there's something within the human heart, as I analyze it, there's something within the human heart and there's something within the culture that likes to keep Jesus in a box. Jesus can be a cute baby in a manger. He can be one of the parts of Christmas. I can sentimentalize him and I I will allow him to be part of the panoply of Christmas aspects, with the stockings, with Santa Claus, with chestnuts roasting over an open fire, as long as he is not the sum and substance of Christmas, and as long as he doesn't have something to say about my life today, as long as he does not interfere in my life today. And so that is why I have chosen to bring us Psalm 110 today, because I think perhaps what What the world needs, and perhaps what we as Christians need on Christmas, is the intense clarity of the second advent of Jesus. Perhaps in order for us to understand and rightly value the incarnation of the Son of God, we need to consider who he is now and who he will be at his second coming. And maybe in order for us to respond to him fittingly, we need to see in sharp relief that there are only two groups of people in the world. One group is those who embrace Christ the Lord, the incarnate Son of God, as their King and High Priest, offering themselves freely to him. The other group is made up of those who are indifferent or opposed to his rule. And because of that indifference or opposition, will be destroyed by Christ's wrath and fury. As we see this dividing line drawn by Jesus at his second advent in Psalm 110, we will understand how to respond fittingly to the one who came down to us at Christmas. At his first advent. Our text breaks down into three sections. And the first section. In verses 1 through 3. Establishes Jesus kingly authority. Verse 1 says this. The Lord says to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool you see that first word, Lord, in all caps, L-O-R-D, in all caps, that is God's name as the self-existent eternal one, Yahweh. And that second word, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is the word Adonai. It's a king, a master, an authority. So if we take that together... The self-existent, eternal one, is saying to the master, sit at my right hand in the place of honor until I make your enemies your footstool, until I enable you to conquer your enemies. And what's, what's the story here? Because this was, this was penned by David. And David was king of Israel. David was clearly monotheistic, David was writing 800 or so years before the birth of Jesus. But there's no, there's no pluralism in his culture. that There shouldn't be two Yahwehs. There shouldn't be two gods. So what, what explains David's writing here about two lords? Saying Yahweh is saying to another one who is in authority himself over David as well. So what explains that? Jesus asked the same question to the Pharisees in Matthew 22. And he said this to them. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And in response to that, they said to him, the son of David. That's the right answer. Jesus was prophesied to be the son of David. The Messiah was supposed to be the son of David. But then Jesus says this to them. He says, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, make your, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord or Adonai, how is he that is the Messiah, David's son? What was Jesus getting at here? Jesus was pointing to something important about the identity of the Messiah. That the Messiah would not only be David's son, he would not only come from the lineage of David, but he would also be one who was greater than David, great David's greater son. He would be one with not only messianic, credentials but also lordly power someone like jesus jesus is and has always been david's lord from all eternity just as we heard in john chapter one he was in the beginning with god and he was god he was the eternal word and he is the eternal word so he's always been there co-equal with God the Father, seated in glory with him. But in the context of this psalm, God is enthroning Jesus, as it were. Yahweh, his Father, is enthroning or re-enthroning Jesus. And the divine commentary we have on this from Hebrews chapter 10 is that the occasion for this re-enthronement was Jesus' death. It says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, of course, Jesus had to be raised in order to be re-enthroned, but what this text in Hebrews points out particularly to us is that Jesus' death was the key to his re-enthronement. We wouldn't think that that would be the case because typically when a a person dies, they're they're not going anywhere good. They're not being re-enthroned. They're not being put in a place of power. And that's true of all but one king. Again, Jesus is great David's greater son. So unlike David, who issued commands to his son solomon on his deathbed because he knew that his efficacy he knew that his power was going to fail jesus ascends to the right hand of the throne of god with the occasion being his offering of himself as a sacrifice for sins his death all the more strengthens his authority because jesus does not waste his own blood the sword that Simeon said would pierce through Mary's soul, it's not to no avail. Instead, Jesus not only has the oath of Yahweh seating him at his right hand, but has the strengthening assurance of his death because, again, Jesus does not waste his own blood. He's going to continue his work and bring it about to full victory until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. This, this assurance, this assurance given by the oath of Yahweh in verse 1, and by the fact that Jesus will not waste his own blood, it is a terrible thing for his enemies. These are strong guarantees That the son of God, the incarnate son of God, the one who came down on Christmas will bring about perfect justice. That's why it says in Psalm 2 that all must kiss the son. They must honor him lest he be angry and he bring about their death, their perishing forever. Now, we need to allow Jesus to define who these enemies in verse 1 are. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you say, I think Jesus was a good teacher. I, I am not his enemy. I don't feel like his enemy. I'm happy to have him be a part of Christmas. But again, we need to allow Jesus to define the terms. The one who came down at Christmas in his earthly life said, he who is not with me is against me. One man's words, one man's comments on this are that it's not necessary to oppose Christ in order to be against him. It's only necessary not to be with him. Nor is it necessary to actively interfere with his work. The person who does not belong to God is the enemy of God. The one who is not a child of God through Christ is a rebel against God. In other words, what Jesus is saying by saying he who is not with me is against me is that unless I'm your life, unless I'm your all, you are not my friend, but in fact, my enemy. Perhaps you're sitting here today and, you might not only be indifferent to the rule and reign of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you might actually be opposed. You might think that Christ is a liar. You might think that Christ is a lunatic. You might think that Christ is a myth. These strong guarantees given by God the Father in this first verse of the psalm This strong guarantee is is a guarantee that you will see things far differently when he returns at his second advent. Again, there, there are only two groups in the world. There are those who embrace Christ. There are those who say that they will offer themselves freely to him as we see in verse three. And then there are those who say we will not have this man. We will not have Christ the Lord rule over us. But I think as as Christians, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to question how could anybody offer themselves freely to the Lord Jesus? We know that one sin is enough to condemn a man for all eternity because one sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And as Christians, we know and see our sin. We see that our sin is against Yahweh. We see that our sin is against the self-existent eternal one. So how could someone offer themselves freely to this God? This, this language in verse 3 is interesting. This phrase, your people will offer themselves freely... ...could also be translated, your people will be free will offerings. And so, Derek Kidner, a great commentator on the Psalms... ...sees this as a preview of the language in Romans chapter 12... ...where we're commanded to be living sacrifices to God. If there is a self-existent eternal one in heaven... ...who is saying to the master, rule in the midst of your enemies... And if there is one who rules with perfect justice, who will make every enemy a footstool for his feet, then how can people like us become free will offerings to him on that day and every day of our lives? I think we find the answer in verse four of our psalm today. Look down with me there at verse four as we consider Christ's priestly credentials, and we'll come back to verse 3. Dear brothers and sisters, you who have received and rested upon Christ, you are his people, we are his people, and we will be able to offer ourselves freely to him, then at his second advent, and now every day of our lives, because he presently deals with, With our guilt. We have a priest. A priest who Yahweh has appointed. Just as Christ was born to be an appointed king who rules. He was born to be a superior priest. Who intercedes. Where do I get this? It's in the the oath in verse 4. That Jesus is a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. This, this small interlude, this, this one verse amidst these seven verses is like a river of grace between two mountains of judgment and authority in verses one through three and verses five through seven. And that river flows forever for those who are his people. The priests under the old covenant were those who brought the people before God. They offered some typological but legitimate animal sacrifices to deal with sin. However, their intercession was not ultimate and could not make the people perfect in the eyes of God. It could not cleanse them of all their sin perfectly and efficaciously. This is why we need a superior priest. Look with me at verse 4. That first sentence says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is signaling to us that just as Yahweh gave an oath, just as he gave a promise to Adonai in verse 1, here he gives another promise. There's no changeability in this oath because the one who makes this commitment, Yahweh himself, cannot go back on his word And cannot lie. This is different from the former priests. The former priests were not made priests with an oath. Jesus was appointed a priest with an oath. This makes Jesus the surety or the guarantee of a better covenant because his priesthood is guaranteed by Yahweh. He was born to be a superior priest. Again, going on in verse 4, the content of the oath is that Jesus is a priest forever. Unlike the former priests, he does not die. Though he came down at Christmas and took on the weakness of a truly human life, he was raised to the power of an indestructible life. He was born to be a superior priest. The final aspect of Jesus' superior priesthood in verse 4 is that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the mysterious priest king who greeted Abraham when he returned from the slaughter of kings in Genesis 14. Abraham was blessed by this mysterious man, and he also, he also received an offering. That is, Melchizedek received an offering from Abraham, This signals to us that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and in turn, all of the descendants of Abraham, which included Levi and all of the priests that came from that line. So the priests in the Old Covenant were after the order of Levi, and thus they had a temporary priesthood. But Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He's the son of David of the tribe of Judah. And about that tribe nothing was ever said in the Old Testament in regard to the priesthood. But this allows him to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which makes him superior to every priest who is before him, just as Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. Through the old priesthood no one could be made perfect the animal sacrifices given by inferior priests could not fully cleanse anyone of sins. Instead, they pointed to a greater priesthood, a priesthood which would find its fulfillment in the one who is holy, innocent, unstained, and yet truly human. Jesus, in his belonging to the order of Melchizedek, is a superior priest. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, a new kind of priest, a superior priest. Why does this matter? There was a lot of detail about the the priesthood of Jesus, about the priesthood of Levi, about Melchizedek. Why, Why does that matter? Why does it matter that we have a new kind of priest, a superior priest? Well, Christian let me ask you this and I'll, I'll ask myself this question as well how did you sin this week how many ways and in what ways did you sin it's supposed to be a time advent is supposed to be a time of heavenly longing and preparation let every heart prepare him room right right But maybe all that that expectation of preparation and heavenly longing, maybe all that did was put a spotlight on your iniquities, just like it did on my sins and iniquities. Now, with those iniquities in mind, let's consider our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. What the book of Hebrews says about the Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7 is this. Because he is not like those priests. Because he does not die. Because he has the power of an indestructible life. Because he continues forever. He is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near unto God through him. Because he ever lives to make intercession for them. So the question for you, Christian, is not how much did I sin this week? In what ways did I sin? Or how will I offer myself freely to him today and on that day, the great day of his second advent? And the question is definitely not, when he returns, will the incarnate God-man make me a a footstool for his feet? No. No. The question for you, dear Christian, is this. Am I drawing near unto God through this great high priest? That's the reason why he came. He came to die. He came to be raised. He came so that he could, in his eternal humanity, serve as a great high priest in order that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. That was for the Christian. That is for the Christian. Now to the indifferent or the opposed, I say this. Will you not have this high priest? Will you not have Christ the Lord who was born a child and yet a king and born to be a savior? Will you not have the one who was born to save his people from their sins? He is the one, as it says in Hebrews chapter four, who searches the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Being fully God, he is omniscient and sees into the heart of every man. And as I said before, it only takes one iniquity, one sin, one violation of his holy law to condemn you for all eternity. But the good news is this. The one who searches hearts and minds is also a high priest who says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and know the sure mercies of God, the tender mercies of God in the forgiveness of your sins. If you come to him, he will never cast you out. He will embrace you unreservedly as your high priest and intercede for you forever. We've seen that the superior priest enables Christians to be a living sacrifice and also to offer themselves freely to him. On that great day of his second advent, and that he welcomes all who come to him, even the indifferent and the opposed. This is this is what verse three is speaking to. Well, now we know what verse three is speaking to, that the people will be able to offer themselves freely, and why and how they will be able to offer themselves freely. And we'll we'll get into some more of the specifics of that verse. Now, they will do that on the day of his power again on a second advent in holy garments from the womb of the morning. And then it says this, the dew of your youth or the dew of Jesus' youth will be his. There's some unique phrases there. So I'm just going to take that and sum it up for us. So we, we understand the thrust of verse three. I think we can summarize verse three by saying that from the dawn of that day the great day of his second advent, the day of his return, his people will render full allegiance. And the freshness of his own everlasting life or the dew of his youth will continue forever because he was raised to the power of an indestructible life. That's why that indestructible life is why when he comes back, he will enact total victory. We see here a contrast between his first coming and his second coming. In his first coming, he became like us, to sympathize with us, and to offer grace. In his second coming, he's coming back in an almost superhuman humanity to destroy and enact justice upon all of his enemies. So we see in verses five through seven, he goes and brings his work to total victory. It says this, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, that is on the day of Jesus' wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Notice in verse five, that word kings. And then, in verse 6, chiefs. And then, Jesus' head in verse 7. All of those words, although they're probably translating, translated in various ways in your English Bible, all of those words are actually the same word. They're, they're the word for a head. So, there are the heads of nations, essentially, that Jesus is coming back and destroying And then there is Jesus, the great commander of his people, in verse 7, pausing in his everlasting humanity to take a drink from a brook, briefly, and then continue the pursuit, to continue the route. And what we need to pull from those verses is this. On that day when he comes back, he will shatter, he will smash, he will dash asunder all other heads upon the earth. He will shatter kings, he will shatter chiefs, and then his head will be lifted up. And on that day, on that second day, the child who came down at Christmas, the one who was a baby in a manger, the one who became a servant to the point of death, that same one will be seen to be the exalted head of nations. That's all, that's all future, right? Your people, in verse 3, will offer themselves. The, king, the king, Jesus, king Jesus will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment. He will shatter chiefs. He will lift up his head. So I think what we need to ask ourselves today is what implications do these future realities have on our lives? For believers, I think one of those implications could be this. Peter Peter says this in one of his letters. If all all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what manner of people ought you to be in holiness and righteousness? There are ethical implications to the coming of Christ, to the second advent of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And that's why when we see the people offering themselves freely in verse 3, they're offering themselves in holy garments. That holy attire is symbolic of good works. And in light of the worthiness of our King, it's right for us to clothe ourselves as Christians with those good works in praise, exaltation, and adoration of our king, of the one who was born, Christ the Lord. And again, this is all future, but what are the present implications for those who are indifferent and opposed? What I think those in that group need to see here is that what's shown in verses five through seven, Jesus' total victory, it's a picture, it's a physical picture of, of what's going on in the spiritual realm day after day after day. His judgment doesn't just await that great day. But as the book of Romans says, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul who does not perfectly obey the law. And there will be tribulation and distress for every soul who does not perfectly obey the law, not because any man can, but because we must rest in Christ. We must embrace Christ. We must receive Christ to be cleansed of all of our sins. So again, it's another strong encouragement to receive and rest upon the one who came down to us at Christmas. But what a difference, once again, it is for Christians. What a different place Christians are in. Christians will never face that wrath. Christian, Christian. You will never face this wrath as sinful as you are. Perhaps you woke up today in gloom and in sadness because the time of year and and the day, it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year and the most wonderful day of the year. But perhaps it it felt like far from that. Take heart. You will never face this wrath. You will never face the second death because of the one who came down to die for you, who now intercedes for you. You have a perfect high priest, a superior high priest in heaven for you. And that same superior high priest, that same one now sympathizes with you in your weakness and in all of your temptations. When he comes back, to enact total victory, to totally conquer all of his enemies, all of your enemies will be conquered. Everything that stands against you now, the world, the flesh, the devil, will be put underneath your feet because it will be put underneath his feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This great king, this great high priest will, at his second coming, be violent for the sake of peace. Because ultimately, he's the prince of peace. Now with with that concept in mind, with the fact that verse 7 ends our our psalm, but verse 7 doesn't end the entire story. Because Jesus, Jesus doesn't just come back to destroy, he comes back to establish an eternal reign of peace with that concept in mind. I'd like us to read what we also read last night from Isaiah chapter nine. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read this for us as we begin to close our time. This is what the great king, the definitive conqueror, the everlasting human yet divinely powerful one has come back will come back to do. He will come back to do this, to bring about everlasting peace. Listen to these words from Isaiah 9. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And That will be the end of all conflict. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with righteousness, with justice, and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is a prince of peace. He is the definitive conqueror. He is the one with kingly authority. In the fullness of time, he came And in the fullness of time, he will once again come to establish this everlasting reign of righteousness and justice. Here we have another guarantee. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That day is coming. Therefore, take heart this Christmas. And continue to offer yourself freely to the one who was born, Christ the Lord, the Savior. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ the Lord. We thank you that though you did not have to send him, experience what he did, to experience what we experience, and to experience it to an even greater degree in in terms of the pain and, and suffering of this world. You sent him in the fullness of time. You sent him to be a sympathetic high priest. You sent him to be a conquering king who enacts perfect justice. And so, Father, in light of those things, today I pray that you would fill the hearts of my brothers and sisters with all joy and peace in believing. May you inflame our hearts with love for the one who came to be that priest, to be that king, and ultimately to establish justice and righteousness and perfect peace forever. In his name, amen.